for this particular episode, we're going to get a little bit personal and Byram and I are going to talk about some of the, shall we say, biggest transformational points yes, in our absolutely. life um, that have helped us really shape how we view the world and also shaped our identity. Um, and we're going to do that for two reasons. One, I think that personal stories are generally a lot more interesting than just throwing out a lot of stats and surveys and like research. Um, and two, hopefully this is a good base for you guys to get to know us a little bit better if you don't already. Uh, and hopefully it will be an interesting, interesting point to then uh, jump off of in future episodes. So without further ado, talking about big transformational points in our life, Byram, do you want to start us off? What has been a moment in your life or an experience that really comes to mind that has shaped who you are and how you view the world? Right. Yeah. So if you think back to, um, there are always like some moments that fundamentally shifted your perspective on life. Right. Um, and I think like one from a very early age was, uh, so I'm, I'm half Tunisian and my dad came from Tunisia and most of my family is from there. Right. And we've been like we've gone there twice a year pretty much uh, since i was a <laughs> one-year-old kid and the thing is like so i grew up uh on the one hand in amsterdam super privileged everything fine brain working fine all the opportunities good food the problems that you have seem big and then i go on a holiday there and then i see that like the other half of my family has pretty much nothing barely has shoes um they get our old clothes and and also like just the the lack of opportunities that they have right and i think this has fully shaped my perspective because like you kind of see um even though we're all humans and we're all very similar because it's my family and, and you notice that they think similarly right they they have a very similar way of like being but they just don't have the opportunities that we have here uh, so even if they try really hard it doesn't work and if I look around me here in, in the Western world, there are a lot of people that don't have such an experience. It doesn't have to be family, right? But if you haven't seen what the really poor look like, uh, what, what a poor lifestyle looks like, really hard to understand how lucky you are precisely. And I think this is something that like um, very much made me aware of the fact that even though we would like to say that everyone is equal and that everyone gets equal opportunities in reality it's not so much true yet um and i think it would really help if a lot of people had awareness of this fact at least or at least like get some kind of like <laughs> reminder every once in a while like look look how good even your shitty day is <laughs> right and it's something i still need a reminder of but at least this is something that I, I feel very privileged. I think it's done something um, uh, something very good. I could have been in Tunisia. Okay. No way we would have recorded this podcast. <laughs> Honestly. So, okay. So, so I guess there's the, the, there's two questions that maybe come up, or, or two factors that I think come <clears> up <throat> that would be worth to deep dive on. Firstly, how does that affect your general? happiness um is this something that you use to kind of like be more grateful about your situation um and two i think we've had previous conversations before how does this shape in terms of your work ethic and your kind of like ambition aspiration um yeah. etc uh yeah good questions so on a on a fulfillment level i think it gives you um a very strong way to like um see how relative your problems are <laughs> So even on the shittiest of days, uh, and I feel super bad and I feel like like the world is plotting against me. It's not really true, but like sometimes you have that feeling, right? E on those days, I can just think back to my family in Tunisia and then be like, I have no reason to complain, <laughs> right? And that's something that gets you going in even, even the darkest of times, right? So um, I think that's, that's one part. And the other part is just like, um, as for, for performance, I think that comes down to like responsibility mostly. Um, so same, like my dad worked really hard to get where he is now here in the Netherlands. And um, same, same for my mom, she is Dutch, but still like she also worked really hard to like build a somewhat good lifestyle. And um, 
my brother and I grew up here. Most of my family grew up in the, in Tunisia. Then we are like we are one of the very few ones that are able to achieve something relatively big and then give back to the community in Tunisia, right? Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that that feeling of responsibility at least makes you not want to sit down and game all day, <laughs> right? It makes you want to like progress somewhat, show your family what's possible, and and I think it just um, it also gives you meaning. You know what you do it for, right? Um, so I, I work very hard, and very often that goes like that comes at the cost of your self interest, right? Um, but you know what you do it for. And I think that's something that's been tremendously useful uh, over the years. Yeah, I guess as you were saying that, I mean, I can relate to so much of that being an immigrant from Bulgaria yeah. myself and sort of I guess my, <clears throat> my grandparents are incredibly poor and my parents as well, um, in some ways, uh, you know, have, have accumulated some wealth, but through, through a lot of work. And I guess the interesting thing in what you said right there is i guess framing it as responsibility yeah. um because what that triggered in me as you were talking was that i guess we're given these tools right and we all have a set of tools but we don't quite know what these tools can be yeah and only once we kind of have an experience of like oh wait hold on so i've got access to you know fair <laughs> capital <laughs> yeah. markets i've got access to education i've got access to the internet I didn't realize that all of the tools that I have at my disposal, not yeah. everyone else has. And it kind of gives, makes you much more conscious around like, hey, well, I might as well then optimize yeah. this um, as much as possible and make the most of it. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, I guess responsibility and taking yeah, stuff for absolutely. granted. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely like really interesting points. Would you say, would you say there's like one specific moment that comes to mind that like really is like strongly anchored around this whole kind of like immigrant, uh, very fortunate position kind of like transition in your life? Um, well, it's, it's, it, or is it just yeah, a it's a collection of moments, but it, like, I, I do have one example, which makes it clear. Like, hmm. so think about this. And right now the situation in Tunisia is a lot better, luckily, uh, because of the Arab Spring, uh, which originated in Tunisia as well. But like, so before it was relatively corrupt, um, and to give you an idea, so a big part of my family hasn't finished elementary school. <laughs> they haven't finished their, their eight years, wow, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes when you aren't smart enough and you're in fifth grade, then it's just like, yeah, no, better to stay home. They also still, uh, the teachers smack people with rulers in the class on their hands, right? That's still going on at the same time. And then you have this what you had before is for example where the teacher would give tutoring as well so the teacher wouldn't get paid much so he would also tutor but then um <laughs> the system would be so corrupt that part of the questions that you would have to answer on the exam would only be covered in the tutoring aka all the people that don't have money for tutoring will therefore get low grades right and the grades are extremely important because if you don't like get high grades, then you cannot go to high school or to university. So imagine the fact that yeah. like I've seen even like smart cousins, they just don't have any chance of actually getting a career. And then you're 25 uh, and you're thinking like, yeah, what are my opportunities? And truly it's like nothing. I need to work with my hands because also there there is no money there. So you can... Here you can get creative. You can think, okay, I'm gonna start a business, and then I'm gonna go to the to 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 some companies that do have money. There, there is no money. <laughs> so even when you're 25, there's no opportunity to start something, or barely, I would have to say. Um, so I think those are are some examples of of how privileged we are without being aware of it, right? And yeah, now good. No, I guess that's interesting because it's it's this whole concept of I guess like local uh, and relative truth versus absolute yeah. truth, um, and I think with something like wealth, we often forget that it's like a yeah, power absolutely. law. Um, so, for example, you know, the average I think salary in the UK yearly is something around like twenty eight thousand yeah. um, pounds, and I guess most it, it, it's not a lot, 
Um, and most people uh, would actually sit below that, but then there'd be a, a lot of outliers that earn 10 yeah. times that and a few less outliers that then earn 10 yeah. times that as well. Um, and you know, like wealth is, is, is not <laughs> so a, a linear distribution, yeah, it's absolutely. a power law. Um, and I guess sometimes we, we don't quite appreciate where yeah. where we sit in yeah, that power. Yeah, exactly. and, and it's super hard, right? Like you cannot blame people for it either. Uh, if you haven't seen yeah. what the other side looks like, you cannot like fully appreciate how good your side is, right? Uh, that's why I think it's great if people like study abroad or go go work in abroad, um, especially like in cultures but, but he, where people are fully different, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but here's a question yeah. for you, I guess. Do you think that ignorance is bliss to some extent? Um, because maybe actually, what one interesting point is, you know, living in a city like London. New York, any of like these really big, great cities, you actually are able to see that distribution pretty well, right? So in London, you could go over to like Kensington and Chelsea and yeah. everyone has, you know, supercars, you know, yeah. big fancy multi-million pound houses, etc. You could go to certain parts of East London where it's, you know, like 10 people living in a three yeah. bedroom house and you're actually able to relatively see the distribution. Yeah. Whereas I guess if you're in a place like Tunisia, um, you know, very poor, but relatively everyone, most people around you are very poor. So you don't actually see that distribution as much. Uh, and maybe, you know, I, I, I do think there is some psychological truth around ignorance is bliss. Yeah. And, you know, the, what is it, the Dunning-Kruger yeah. <laughs> effect, which is most people think they're yeah, above yeah, average, yeah. <laughs> which statistically yeah. doesn't make sense. Um, but that does actually prove that, um, you know, in terms of happiness, particularly, the less intelligent and aware you are to some extent, the more happy you tend to be. Um. It, you're making legit points, and I think there's definitely some kind of truth, but I think it's only when coupled with control. What they lack is control. Mm. Um, even if they wanted to get to a better situation, there's no way to get it. Because if you're older, you cannot go back to school without an education, you cannot get a good job. Even if when you have a good job, you don't have job security. Like, combine all these things, and then... Um, and also, I think... The ignorance is bliss. It's very true if you're truly ignorant. Uh, but now there's internet. They all have <laughs> Facebook. They actually see the really best things yeah. in the world. They're just aware of how impossible it is for them to get it. Right? And then, wow. for example, yeah. like... Um, so that's, that's like uh, some of the things. For example, in, in, in the village, what you notice is... Um, People think of the Netherlands literally as this like paradise <laughs> and y like it's it's hard to fathom how how paradise like it looks to them. Right. So, for example, we have a painting there and it's a painting of like a, a beautiful, big French garden and it's ridiculously big. Right. Like when I look at it with my Amsterdam standards, I'm like, yeah, that's impossible for them. It's like that's your garden. Right. And most of them think like that because to them, the Netherlands is is. Uh, huge right and that counts for most western mm. countries so i think they're aware <laughs> they are aware they're not as ignorant as they uh, as, yeah. as would help kind of that's a really good point around the internet actually I hadn't, I hadn't necessarily connected those dots but but i think you make a really good case i guess maybe part of the challenge though in terms of control is i guess learned helplessness yes. to some extent and the factor that that plays Absolutely. into it because uh, uh, again, I'm, I'm not maybe really trying to make a point here, but rather an observation. If I think about London, again, you know, big metropolitan area, like I said, you know, you can see kind of like both extremes yeah. of the spectrum. But one of the interesting things is that, you know, London in, in many ways, you know, it, it kind of has parallels with the American dream, like, you know, work hard yeah. and shit can happen. Mm -hmm. So when you look at, um, you know, someone being really successful and really rich in London, you attribute the fact, well, you know, if I work harder and if I do more, I will eventually be yeah. able to get there, which is both hugely empowering and potentially sometimes really yeah. quite depressing. Whereas I guess if you're operating in a system where it's like, well, no matter what I can, no matter what I can do, I'll never be able to progress because the yeah. system is corrupt. Therefore, why yeah. even bother? That's learned yeah. helplessness. But to some extent, once you realize that your actions don't necessarily have much an effect, does that make you enjoy the present? Oh, that's a good question. I do think they enjoy the present more. Um, 
but I like honestly, I also think because there's less to do, <laughs> we're distracted, right? Yeah. Like, uh, so you have this podcast, and then when you're done with the podcast, you have a walk, and then when you get back from the walk, like which book am I gonna read, right? Like, so there's you're always like kind of looking forward to the next activity. Whereas what you see there, like one of the the patterns that I love about there, they live from meal to meal. In the morning, they wake up and they're like, okay, what are we gonna bake for for? For breakfast and then after mm. breakfast they're like okay interesting what are we gonna make for for lunch so they're absolutely way more um <laughs> happy in some ways present um but the learned helplessness the thing is like if it's close enough like if you can see what the good life looks like through your mobile screen but there's no way for you to achieve it or at least it feels like that um mm. i think even presence doesn't help that much. It, you still see quite a okay. few people that are getting quite depressed. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, okay. Um, and by the way, it's probably worth mentioning, like, by going down this <laughs> rabbit hole, I don't think either of us are making any political <laughs> uh, or kind Absolutely of like personal judgments, but I think it's more just, you know, in, it's it's in the name of the title. We're trying to explore <laughs> right, reality yeah. and, and, and have these different viewpoints because I think often that, you know, the, the truth is, it's complicated. And, and, and I kind of, you know, having this conversation right now reminds me, you know, some of the holidays that I've taken to Southern Italy, which, you know, yeah. Italy, economically, most of the wealth is aggregated at the top. Uh, and down south, you know, people are seen as slightly more lazy, enjoy life, um, and, and cafes and stuff yeah. like that. And in many ways, actually, that's a aspirational kind of thought for many Westerners. In terms of like, oh, I wish I could just slow down and sit down at a yeah. cafe and enjoy a book and have a you know cigarette yeah. or, or or whatever. Um, and I guess it's it's that kind of like duality and maybe grass is always greener kind of paradox that I think is is really interesting because you know when we when we have complex lives full of opportunity, we really crave the simplicity. <laughs> yeah. And when we have simplicity, it's always the opposite. I guess it's it's the the, the human yeah, condition, absolutely. right? Um, yeah, like, to tie into this point, for example, in Tunisia, they all want uh, white skin color. We go there and we want to get tanned, right? So you truly want to get what you don't have. And it's all like, it can be explained, right? Because there, if you're very, uh, if you have a very dark skin, most likely you have to work outside. When you work outside, okay, don't get me wrong, you still have work. But then again, <laughs> you don't have like an office job, for example, therefore lower status. Whereas here, it's like when you have an, a, a normal job, you don't have the time to be in the sun. Therefore, you're not that tense, right? So, <laughs> okay, then again, I think to underscore what you just said, totally true. Like the 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 goal of these conversations is pretty much to like expand perspectives, right? Because you've seen loads of things that I've never seen and never thought about and and the other way around. And if we can all just like share a few more of these uh, stories and experiences with each other, that, that helps. So like bringing it back, what's mo one of the most life-changing experiences that you've had? Well, I think just following that segue of what you just said in terms of being an immigrant, I'd say one of the most defining things for me was actually moving to Hong Kong. So I think it was in like sort of 2015 to 2016. I spent about, uh, I don't know, like 14, 18 months in yeah. Hong Kong. And to give you a little bit of context. So at the time, I really wanted to go to Hong Kong because I was fascinated by IoT. I had an IoT startup How at the time. How old were you? I just kind of wanted to better. Uh, this was like, I don't know, like. 20, okay. 21, yeah. 22, around that age. So like really early 20s. Um, and so, so so there was two reasons why I wanted to go to Hong Kong. Um, and maybe one of them I only realized in hindsight, but it's something that I think definitely holds true. So on the first part, it's like, you know, this entrepreneurship side where I just wanted to understand IoT manufacturing, wanted to explore that side of the world and just really have a uh, develop my area of expertise within kind of like hardware manufacturing, et cetera. Yeah. But on the other side, I think that, um, yeah, my parents came to the UK, I think in about 2001, and they had like a pretty tough, like immigrant um, kind of like uh, lifestyle coming here. You know, the, my dad was in construction, my mum was uh, in cleaning, like, you know, sort of like typical immigrant yeah. story. Um, but they basically worked incredibly hard, I think for the first 
well, actually for most of the time that they were in the UK. Um, and off the back of that, you know, even though I started working young myself, I, I, my first job was when I was 15. Um, and, you know, I, I worked a full-time job almost all the way through school. But I guess I never quite felt like it was, you know, no, no matter how hard I worked, I just felt that I could never compete with the experience they had moving to a new place and starting yeah. from scratch. And so for me going to Hong Kong, I think that was also a symbolic move of just basically me figuring out, can I, can I earn some stripes here? Can I go to a place and go from zero yeah. to one, from knowing absolutely no one, from understanding nothing about that business world, understanding nothing about that way of living, the language, nothing, and build something. Um, and I, I'd like to think that my, my, my time in Hong Kong was fairly successful. You know, um, I did a pretty cool project with MIT. Um, you know, I, I started a business there. I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, got to meet a lot of VCs. So to me, I think in many ways, that was an incredible experience just on one side, me feeling like I have something that I can sort of um, calibrate yeah, with my parents yeah, yeah. on um, and, and sort of have some sense of equality, yeah. even though I don't think it makes sense when I say it out loud, but there, were, there was just something that I yeah. had to prove. But then the second part of it, I think, was just, you know, as an entrepreneur, now having had that experience of going from zero to one, I think it's just given me an incredible amount of, I guess, like resilience and self-belief, knowing that if I yeah. work hard enough, I'll be able to yeah. figure shit out. It's the opposite um, of learned helplessness. Yeah, I'd say that that has been a, a, a really big part of my, my destiny. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I guess it's, it's, it's the ability to really believe in your agency. <laughs> yeah, well described. And so let's say someone else, because the reason I asked for the age is um, it, it, that's such a formative experience, right? Like such a formative period. Like, let's say someone else would have a somewhat similar situation to you uh, around the age of 20. and is also willing to like go to a different country where they don't speak the language, where it's all just like um, extremely new, right? Um, mm. Are there any things you would recommend them? And, and maybe could you share like any, any like key insights or, or perspective shifting moments in that, in that trip? Hmm, that's a great question. I haven't really thought about it in that way, like sort of, you know, a, a how-to <laughs> guide of jumping into something yeah. completely unknown. Um, thinking about it now, one thing that I would say is that it's really important for you to understand that when you go to a new culture, everything happens for a yeah. reason. <laughs> and in some ways, a sense of randomness is the measure of your ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me let me let me try and contextualize this maybe with, with, with an example. Um, I guess coming from Europe and also like being really working class, I I, I didn't really used to eat out when I was young at all, just because I yeah. couldn't afford it. Um, and going into Hong Kong and Asia, everyone ate out all the time. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, why is everyone doing this? And then, you know, after a couple of months, I kind of realized, well, actually, it didn't take me that months. Like, Hong Kong is a very cramped city. <laughs> it's true, yeah. <laughs> but, but the interesting thing is as well, so, so um, just for a little bit of extra context, um, I actually kind of hacked my, my way into Hong Kong because I got there through uh, a student visa because I kind of, almost said that it was an exchange program, uh, which then actually gave me access to spend time at um, HKUST, which is this amazing university campus, like on the kind of like beach. Um, but ultimately the main reason for that was so I could pay, you know, $900 for nine months <laughs> of accommodation, which was ridiculously yeah. cheap in comparison to anything else that I, I saw online yeah. in Hong Kong. But then for the last, like, um, I don't know, like five months, I lived in the heart of Hong Kong where I was paying um, you know, like, uh, I think it was 1,600 pounds a month for, for a, a, a one bedroom, uh, flat in, in, in the heart of Hong Kong. But the interesting thing is, you know, in that process where I was going out and, you know, trying to find an apartment to, to live in, a lot of places didn't actually have any kind of kitchen facilities. <laughs> they might have a microwave and they might have like one hob, but that's about yeah. it. And so it's not just that space is cramped. But it's also the fact that a lot of places simply don't really have any kind yeah. of like kitchen. 
And also you don't necessarily have a living room. So like, where would you eat? Like, you know, there's not a table to sit down. And so when you think about all these kind of things, it's like, it's not just that, you know, people eat out, it's they eat out because the system in many ways incentivize that. <laughs> um, and so this was a bit of a round, long roundabout story, but I think the important thing is, is that, yeah, I think being able to approach stuff with uh, open eyes and trying to really understand why stuff works yeah. the way that it works. Um, and there's probably like actually much more nuanced examples about business and stuff like that yeah. that we can go into, but maybe that's a conversation. Yeah, I, th I think time. it's a great point that you're making though. And um, like as a human, you as a human, interesting uh, sentence opener, <laughs> but like you always see things from your own perspective, right? You only see it from your own eyes. And then maybe you have things like movies and documentaries where you kind of follow someone's perspective, but it's very easy to like, um, fall into the bias of thinking that the way things are, uh, they became this way because this is the correct way. But it's very hard to figure out that, that this is the correct way in this context. And in a different context, there is an entirely different correct way. And that's, I think your, your story underlines that very well. The fact that if you see multiple of these contexts and you see that everywhere they have a different best path, then you just kind of implicitly start to understand, ah, okay, so in some ways there isn't a best path. There's only a best path for this situation, right? And that's hugely insightful um, way of thinking about it. All right, yeah. yeah. Everything is contextual. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, that's interesting. And also like another theme that I've heard uh, come back over is um, and, and I might like uh, <laughs> be too straight, but the having to prove okay. something to your parents, right? Because I, I have a similar feeling. I also, my dad, like he comes from Tunisia and uh, he worked very hard, like from a cleaning guy to like everything you have. Wait, hold on, let me, let, let oh, me pause ahead. you for a second. Is it, j just because I think this <clears throat> nuanced definition That's is really crazy. important. Is it proving something to your parents or proving something to yourself? About it's your absolutely parents? proving something to yourself. Although in the, in the beginning, I think it um, uh, manifests itself often as the feeling of like having to prove something to your parents, but it's mostly subconscious. Mm. Like, so I'm, I'm mostly becoming yeah. aware of this, like in the past few years, in some ways I do want to mm. like prove myself to my parents. Um, Whereas like for years I've said, no, 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 I'm only doing it for myself, but that's just not entirely true. Like I mostly do it for myself. Mm. Absolutely. And the more I read, the more I become aware of my own reasons. But I do think it kind of kickstarted by, um, in some ways, yeah. like wanting to show also part of this is because I chose an unusual route and then, uh, you kind of want to prove that that's the right way. But in your situation, like, how do you think about that? So, what you just said is in some ways like insightful, but like, could you elaborate a bit on, on how, how that is? And maybe how it differs from friends that don't have that feeling. Complex question, but there you go. Okay, would you be able to just kind of like restate that? Cause I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand okay. what that question is. So because... you and I both have this like inherent drive to prove to ourselves mm -hmm. and, and in some ways to others that you can achieve big mm -hmm. things when you work for it really hard, right? Um, mm -hmm. So how, how do you think that has like shaped your way of living? I think that's the kind of question. Interesting, okay. Well, I think that so, so, so the nuance that I mentioned before, which is proving something to your parents or proving something to yourself yeah. about your parents, that distinction and being able to internalize that and what that actually means for you, because it's, it's very easy to like factually understand it, like from a you know reasoning brain point of view, but from like an emotional brain point of view, it's actually such an important distinction because I think that every time that you are going out there to prove something to someone else, it's just such a dangerous path yeah. to walk um, because in some ways you're giving your sense of agency and your sense of mission and your sense of work, you're, you're allowing someone else yeah. to own that and someone else's interpretation of that to define yeah. who you are. But I think it's so much more important for you to be able to define that for yourself. 
Um, and I think that it's important for me to be able to understand that I'm doing this for myself, but the context of which I'm doing it for is my parents <laughs> or, you know, my relationship with my girlfriend at the time or, or whatever. But I think it's, you really have to get control of your own agency and understand that you're actually doing stuff for yourself because you can't put your fate and your um, kind of life in someone else's hands based on the judgment that they'll have a, a, yeah. on you. Yeah. That just sounds like a really, really dangerous uh, uh, line to walk. Absolutely. I think it's it's very well formulated. And this is also one of those things where you cannot just have like one epiphany and be aware of it. <laughs> it kind of has to be a habit yeah. to continuously think of it, right? Mm. Um, and uh, yeah. well, you corrected me instantly. So I think it's very top of mind for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, so yeah. um, maybe to transition into... Uh, something else that I know yeah. has, has had an influence on, you, uh, influence on you. Like, how did you get to discover this about yourself? Because I know a lot of your discoveries came through something in the realm of mindfulness or meditation. So maybe can like, can you el <laughs> like elaborate a bit on that? You're, you're forcing <laughs> me to do a segue, I love it. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, so you know, on the topic of parents, um, because, you know, the deeper that you go into like the world of psychology, I think the more and more you understand that so much of, I guess, like the trauma slash opportunity that we all gain is just through the formative years of our early childhood development. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, if you want to nerd out about it, you know, there's different kind of wavelengths um, when you're growing up. Primarily, um, a lot of uh, children operate in the alpha and theta brainwaves, which basically means that stuff gets directly hardwired into the brain as we grow up. And as we grow older, then that goes into beta, which is kind of like more of an adult thinking. And that's basically where you can process a lot of the information. And only once you uh, kind of like you know, meditate or once you kind of go for a transformative experience, do you then actually start operating in this beta phase, which is, you know, where a lot of uh, mindfulness and meditation research comes from. Um, that, that, that got a bit deep pretty quick. But, um, <laughs> no, but it's good. Like this, you know this is the context, about, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. And how does that like yeah. relate? How, did, how does that connect so, with how you started? So the way that this connects is, um, yeah, when I did my first Vipassana, um, which I guess is a 10 day silent meditation retreat. It's like a very old kind of like Buddhist practice. And basically you wake up at 4am every day and you meditate for about 10 hours a day and you do it in complete what they call noble silence. Um, so, uh, you know, you don't speak to people, you don't look at people. Um, you're also fasting. So you only have two meals a day. It's a pretty intense endeavor by any yeah, stretch of yeah. the imagination. Um, but I basically had this epiphany around, I think, day seven um, in that experience, which was, um, and yeah, again, this is getting really personal talking about my parents. I'm wondering if they're going to hear this. But in any <laughs> case, <laughs> um, the, the, the realization that I had was that I had always understood two things about my upbringing. One, as an immigrant and sort of basically seeing the hardships that my grandparents went through in terms of, you know, communism and like the Iron Curtain in Bulgaria, together with like what my parents experienced when they first moved to the UK, I think that just created a lot of like drive and ambition. And, and much like you, I think the way that you framed it as around a responsibility yeah. to do better with the opportunities that you have given to you was so strong and prominent. But on the flip side, I guess, also like developed this deep... Mm, Resentment isn't quite the right word, but or maybe it is. But basically, there was there was some something kind of like unhappy or unsatisfied mm. by the contrast that I had in my upbringing compared to some of the peers yeah. that I went through. You know, so you know, classic story. My my parents didn't really come to like many parent-teacher conferences. Didn't really see many school plays. weren't really that in, engaged yeah. with me um, as I was kind of like going through school because you know they're too busy working. And what I never really was able to understand is that both of these things are exactly the same. Yeah. One comes at the yeah. cost of the other. It's almost like a zero-sum game. Because I have one, I have to let go of yeah. the other. And for me, it, it, I think it sounds so obvious saying it out loud, but during Vipassana, I was able to actually find an integration of both of those feelings yeah. at the same time. And really not only um, kind of intellectually understand that these two things happen together, 
but also emotionally understand that. And for me, actually, that in many ways, I think, transformed the relationship um, that I have with my parents um, and how I view them, um, because I was just able to see that, you know, I got given one thing at the cost yeah. of another. And I think, you know, life is always a trade-off and, and, and oft, I mean, weird segue, but I guess in product management and when I work with entrepreneurs, there's one thing that I always say, which is, you know, you're always making a trade-off in every single yeah. decision that you make. And if you, if you think you're not making a trade-off, you haven't thought about the <laughs> exactly, problem hard yeah. enough. And I think it's, it's, it's exactly the same with, with, with kind of like most childhood experiences that people have. Um, Cause you know, I look at um, some of the friends that I have that have had, uh, have been brought up in, in incredibly loving and supportive families. And, you know, to some extent, maybe they, they don't have that pain threshold of like basically throwing yourself in the, in the gauntlet and just like really trying to hustle and, and, and do stuff. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, or I'm not trying to make any kind of value judgment here. I'm just saying that it's different and it's important to understand the causality behind that. Because once you're, once you're aware of the causality, once you can appreciate what's happening and why, I think that just allows you to be a lot more at peace and a lot more, um, you can operate, I think, a lot more yeah, gracefully. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of yeah. your relationships. So yeah, sorry, that was a bit no, of a monologue, yeah. but there you no, go. But I think story. that's great, right? Like, <laughs> especially in in these kind of like complex topics, context matters, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the, the right way to go. Um, and yeah, I, I, can, I can fully imagine. There's no direct question coming up, honestly. <laughs> but I, I do think this is very useful because this is something that like, a lot of people have similar feelings in some way or, or, or similar feelings or ways of thinking. Um, and, and very often, like the hardest thing is like becoming aware of it. Right. Because that's what you said as well. It sounds very obvious now. Well, um, I also very often see the difference between I think I fully grasped something, yeah. but it's not true. I intellectually understood the concept. Right. I didn't realize it in such a way that it's like inherent and I automatically correct people <laughs> when it's like, for example, wrong. Hmm. that's not a good habit either. But hey, um, <laughs> OK, yeah, interesting. And, and maybe like to uh, just, just yeah. to add on that point, though, because I think this is such an such an important thing that we often fall short of, which is we have different ways of understanding yeah. information. And there's different kinds of information out there. Um, and I think being able to kind of intuit something and being able to rationalize something, you know, like back to system one and two, the way that we're thinking about it, there's certain situations where system one is much better yeah. than system two and yes. vice versa. But I think with a lot of these epiphanies um, of, of the human condition, it's really important to experience it and actually feel it on an emotional level in order to be able to truly understand it. I think like the simplest example of that is like, you know, like kind of falling in love like you can watch all the Disney films and all the rom-coms and, you know, you can read all the books and you can understand what the concept is, but until you've actually gone through it and have actually felt what that yeah. feels like, it, it, it's exactly, all just conceptual. Yeah. And, and um, maybe to like broaden the thing that like uh, change your perspective, a 10 day Vipassana retreat, to one person, it sounds like heaven. To another person, it sounds like goddamn hell, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> I don't think there's there's any person that, that that hears that and goes, yeah, this is this is. This no, is no, no I think you're right. Like maybe heaven is the wrong word. Maybe enlightenment is the right word, right? Because I do think a lot of people have conditioned themselves to want progress. Therefore, they can look forward to something like this. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, like so. Um, <laughs> Who, like, what kind of person would you recommend this to? Because I think for a lot of people, this is not the right thing to do. But for a lot of people, this might Ooh. be the right thing. So what are your thoughts there? So I think this is an amazing conversation to have, but I think we should actually park it for a separate episode around mindfulness. Um, because I think it's, it's actually such a bigger and broader topic. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile, a, a, a longer conversation Boom, done episode um, four on mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> done. But yeah. We're, we're planning as we go along. Um, but Byron, what about you? Is, is there another story that comes to mind for you that has had a transformational experience? And yeah. by the way, uh, maybe just before we transition that, because we were talking about this just before we started recording, 
um, this mental model around how and why these experiences are transformational. Um, we were basically saying how if you imagine a pyramid, you know, in life we take many different actions. The actions that we repeat um, and the, or, or that we try and repeat form clusters of habits. Uh, and if you think about habits, then if you cluster a few habits together, you have a set of beliefs. So, for example, you know, you can have a, a belief about yourself that you're a, um, you want to be healthy. And so you're going to build a bunch of habits around, you know, sleep and eating and exercise, et cetera, et cetera. But then once you start grouping a set of beliefs together, you have, I guess, what forms your identity. And I guess with all the conversations that we've had so far, because these experiences have been so powerful, in many ways, they have short-circuited directly to the identity yeah. point. They've been so transformational that they've fundamentally changed how we see ourselves and see the world around us. Um, in many ways, how I guess like, you know, post-traumatic stress yeah. for many people is like a potentially a short experience or, or maybe a prolonged experience that has such a big emotional um, and psychological impact on you that it changes how you then start yeah. to operate. Or conversely, I guess, like on, because I do think that there is an opposite to post-traumatic stress, which is, I guess, in the world of psychedelic research, you know, people have transformative positive experiences from psilocybin, MDMA, DMT, uh, if done under the correct yeah. uh, supervision. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but but I think it's 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 this concept of you know sort of actions uh, are stacked together to create habits, habits are stacked together to create beliefs, beliefs stacked together to create an identity, and I guess in terms of progressing through life and developing, um, a lot of what we're trying to do is rebuild that identity, and a lot of times we have to start at the bottom yeah. and work our way up, but sometimes things happen in our life that just shortcut <laughs> directly to the top and change how we, we, we yeah, view it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true because th those are like even two separate kinds of transformative experiences right like some are just one short explosive experiences that shifts how you think or shifts your perspective on something um which has a far-reaching impact into how you view the world and the other part is just like the the trained one right like where you're slowly conditioned to think or act or believe in a specific way right um mm, yeah and and to answer your your, your question um <laughs> which is in the second camp, right? This is one of those slow and conditioned behaviors. Uh, karate uh, and, and, and just broader martial arts. That has been truly transformative. Um, and like, so, so maybe to give the story a bit, like, so I was a bit of a scared kid. <laughs> and um, a lot of the, th like, I would kind of see the things that could go wrong and then I wouldn't have the balls to like just say okay you know what so I'm still going into that roller coaster so I would just be like nope no roller coasters for the next few years and my dad uh, when I was young like about 12 my dad said okay in different words you're a bit of a pussy and I think karate will do you well <laughs> <laughs> so um, and of course like he said it a bit more empowering but like it's in, in some ways it's true and I'm actually very thankful so in the beginning I didn't want to do it and then after a while like I was somewhat good at it and I'm relatively obsessive so I'm, like went over it and then when you see the progress that's what you get the motivation from right so that's I think one of the common fallacies a lot of people think you need motivation first and then you start doing it all but I think very often it's the other way around you start and then you see the the the, the progress that you've made and then the motivation comes right um yeah. and for years I've just like so from my 12 till I was 19 um I did karate like and and at, at some point about six days a week and also did like uh, international tournaments the, the fighting um uh, like joined join the world championship even got like a medal there but the thing is like the, the the interesting thing is that the matches have been most useful in terms of like mindset right being able to like, emotional management like being able to like confront my own fear that's all the fighting <laughs> right because if you're there and uh, you're on the tatami which is like the mat where you have to fight and then you see other people and you know you're gonna have to fight some of them and most of them look scarier than you right because like I'm, I'm like deep on the inside the fear is still there right um and i think that's where you like learn to like truly manage and control yourself and your body and your mind um, also, this is where you learn like a lot of the, the, the mind over body stuff where you can like kind of in some ways like force yourself to do it. N not saying that it's good, but <laughs> um, and 
the other part is like, especially the traditional martial arts where you actually need to get a higher belt because a lot of people don't realize that the fighting and the belts are different things so i know a few uh, world champion karate uh, karate fighters that honestly don't have a black belt and shouldn't have a black belt but they're great fighters right like so um and i it's the art versus yes uh, absolutely yeah absolutely fighting, great right? like one is focused on effectiveness and the other one is focused on Ooh, lots of different things, including technique. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think the, the, the belt training, so the traditional karate, that has shaped me very, very much because on the one hand, you get this like willpower. You want to do something, you want to do this kick right, but you don't do it right. And then you need the willpower to keep on practicing that one kick 10,000 times over the next few years, mm. right? And that's something you, you condition yourself with every day. Then the discipline, same thing. Every once in a while, like some days you don't want to practice. You really don't want to practice. But if you don't, and this is where the fighting helps because you know like, okay, yeah, but those guys are practicing and if I don't practice, oh damn, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. And also, yeah. So, do, do you think that triggers like a fight or flight? Oh, absolutely. Response? Like psychologically, you're, you're you're imagining yourself in the future and saying, well, "If I don't put in the time right now, I'm going to get absolutely. my ass kicked." And, and in a very um, <laughs> concrete way as well, right? It's not like maybe I'll fail in some future business in this area. No, it's literally like, okay, yeah in six weeks, I'll be in Luxembourg. And if I don't practice now, I'm going to get my ass whooped. <laughs> so that's, um, <laughs> and and I, I think something that is, or at least that consciously has been the most useful, you practice your observation, your observation skills. So especially with the traditional karate, it's all about the details, right? So for example, like when you give a punch, it needs to be a very direct and straight punch where your elbow is to the middle. And when you have your elbow a bit to the side, then you're gonna lose from someone that has it to the middle. And normally these extremely small details or the nuances, you don't pay much attention to them. But here it's different. You're going to, an, uh, for example, like when you do a black belt, you're going to a national day where you're tested and you're tested alongside other people and there will be someone who was the best that day. And um, it's all about like, do you have your foot tilted three degrees more to the front? Stuff like that, right? It's the extremely small details. And what I've noticed is that my years... Um, of every night in in the um, in the karate gym, just observing how people do things, right? So for example, there's some kind of throw and then you see the master or the sensei do it like eight times. You need to focus on different things. So the first time you look only at his legs, <laughs> only at what's happening with the legs. And once I have the legs, then I have the foundation. And then it's like, okay, interesting. So how does the hip kind of move, right? And then it could be that after three times, I haven't even seen like the entire picture of what's going on, but you have learned to focus on yeah. these details. And in the business world, I think it's very similar. It's very similar, but most people aren't aware of all the tiny details, if that makes sense. And not to claim as if I am, right? But I'm aware of how unaware I am. <laughs> I think that might be the difference. Yeah. I guess like step one of transitioning from a life of ignorance <laughs> <laughs> to become aware of how little you know. Right. And, and also, I think this can be achieved in many ways. It doesn't have to be a martial arts. Yeah. It can be something else, but it needs to be something that demands your full attention. So, so would you say that, because ultimately what you're describing here is yes. mastery, you know, the ability for you to like gain yes. skill to such a level that almost time yes. slows down yeah. because you're able to deconstruct a movement, a thought, you know, action to its like most Absolutely. minute detail. So I guess like at a meta level, would you say that karate has just given you an appreciation and desire to achieve mastery in whatever <laughs> you do? Interesting. Yes, that's that's part of it. Uh, it has also given me the sense of like control or agency that you talked of. Because I worked ah, okay. really hard every day, but then I also got the medals, right? Um, and it doesn't have like mm -hmm. the third at the world championship, that, that was something I didn't expect to happen, right? But even like just like um, 
when you get a third place at a regional tournament here in the Netherlands. Even that tiny thing gives you like, ah, you see? So if I work hard, I will achieve it. It's like growing your growth mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I guess actually that, that, is, that is an interesting thing. Maybe to go like back full circle to um, the story that we kind of said at the start in terms of Tunisia, I guess, you know, the power of being in an environment where your ability to have agency actually can result in yeah. something. So I guess like th this potentially, like if I think back to, you know, some of the criticisms that I've discussed with my grandparents around sort of, you know, communism in Bulgaria, although, you know, some people say socialism, like whatever, let's not get too political right now. Um, that's a separate yeah. conversation. <laughs> I think it's, it's actually more around the fact that, you know, the system was rigged in such a way where your ability, your, your sphere of influence and impact of what you could have in the life around you was actually very yeah. small. You were kind yeah. of given a lane and you kind of had to follow that lane and maybe you go, you know, one, one step here, two steps there, but ultimately you're still pretty well yeah. defined where you are at. Whereas I guess like part of what we're talking about here is your ability to really have a strong conviction. And if I, if I follow these inputs, they will, deliver some yeah. set of outputs yes absolutely and 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 maybe like a small nuance there very often i don't even uh know what the exact outputs are going to be like i just have the overall goal of let's work hard to make sure that tomorrow is a bit better than today and then hopefully through the process of compounding over time that's going to be like a huge difference. And if you think well about what these like fundamental skills and abilities are that you like practice over time, then my belief is that over time, that'll be hugely useful. How exactly? I don't know. Right. So th that's like maybe a side note to, to uh, listeners. Like you don't necessarily need to know exactly where you want to go, <laughs> but you do need, yeah. be need to be able to like articulate why you're like improving the things that you're trying to improve. That makes sense. Mm. And so, so this is probably a great segue, you know, because we're talking about basically learning and yeah. compounding, um, and I guess like <clears throat> the value of compounding that experience and that knowledge, um, and that pretty much sets us up for there our next go. episode, which is going to be all around the most impactful books that we've read that have shaped finally. our thinking. Um, so yeah. <laughs> what do you mean finally? Looking forward to talking about books. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, two, two, two bookworms going <laughs> to hash it out. Um, well, thank you very much all for listening. Um, this has been a really personal um, and hopefully interesting, interesting episode yeah. for us, definitely for myself. Um, and hopefully you found it interesting as well. And yeah, we look forward to recording the next yes. one. Costa and Byram out.